Hi friends, welcome to today's edition of the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And today I'm so excited that we have with us Sahar Al-Salani. Hi Sahar. Hi. It's so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for being with us. Sahar is an interfaith peace activist with a background in broadcast media and entertainment. Most recently, determined to pursue a path for social good, the Iraq-born Muslim made a life-changing decision to move to New York and leave behind a successful career in Los Angeles, where she had worked for many years as a television writer, producer, and editor. Sahar's various projects included Productions for USA Broadcasting, Warner Brothers, Entertainment, Fox, Paramount, the American Forces Network, and Discovery ID. Now, along with serving on the board of the North American Interfaith Network, Sahar is a member of the Executive Council of Religions for Peace, USA, the board of Council on American Islamic Relations in New York, has contributed to the faith-based outreach of the Revived Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and is a fellow at Green Faith, an interfaith organization dedicated to climate justice. Zahar has also served as a former co-chair of the Fellowship of Reconciliation USA. She is a member of the Community of Living Traditions at the Stony Point Center just outside New York City, one of North America's only intentional multi-faith communities intended for studying the principles and practice of social justice, nonviolence, and radical hospitality. Sahar, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome, my friend. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's always really good to see you, Aaron. So and hello to everybody out there. Hi, everybody. We, we met uh, a number of months ago at an interfaith climate summit uh, that was being hosted in Colorado. And we today have so much we, we can talk about and share with folks. And really at this nexus of concern for environment, for social justice in communities all over, and how that relates and connects to our diverse faith practices is such a rich, uh, groundwork for for discussion exploration for sharing and so har i want to i want to ask you um to kick us off what what is an interfaith peace activist what does that mean well anybody that follows any path of moral conscience uh, whether it's following a particular code of laws um, a democracy a socialist ideal uh, a path to a divine um, is really a roadmap to justice. Any one of our holy scriptures is really a set of guidelines to, to conduct ourselves in a life that is geared towards equity and balance for ourselves and for those around us. Uh, and so when you, are, when you are an activist and you're searching for justice and you're searching for balance, you ha it has to come from something inherent within you. Um, and a lot of times it is from a path that guides you towards a path of the divine. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but there is something inherently that drives you to do good. And when you pursue that path and you have your conviction to work for justice, 
it can only be amplified uh, when it's done collectively because then exponentially the, uh, the results can only be spectacular. Um, and I think that's the movement that's really had to happen in the last few decades in this country because so many people have been fighting for the same things but have been doing it in parallel tracks. And only recently with the spread of television and, and radio at the mass level and now with the internet, do we really see, oh wow, this group is actually asking for the same thing we're doing. And they actually have advocacy organizations and they have lobbying and they do feed the homeless and they do have jets that are ready to go and disperse at a moment's notice. And that is really the power of what the moral conscious movement can do to act to, um, to mobilize the, polit the political climate, I think in this country and abroad. Yeah. I was so struck uh, when we first met and in, in the subsequent conversations and exchanges that we've had that you clearly come from, act from your heart and a sense of love, of compassion, of empathy. And it seems to me that's, that's one of the keys to creating the culture and the future I think we all hope for. And I, I'm curious, share with us if you would, how, how do you do that? How do you cultivate that? How do you come from heart like you do day in and day out? Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, I, think, I think it's kind of twofold. I think in any kind of moral tradition, uh, there's, always, there's always a dichotomy, if you will. Uh, several traditions feel that the concept of divine stems from an emotional love aspect. And there are other traditions that stem from a, a rational aspect. Mm. Um, I know that Islam has 99 names of the divine. Uh, one of them is love. One of them is justice. One of them is truth. One of them is reckoning. So the concept of God is so, so up here that nobody really knows what the tangible concept is. So a lot of times I have, I've met people that are claimed to be atheists and, oh, what is this, this concept of, of love? And I'm like, well, it's also justice, you know, it's also truth, it's also harmony, it's also accountability. Um, and so I happen to come from the Islamic tradition, but I was, I grew up in Catholic schools and I also went to a lot of Jewish summer camps. So I've noticed that from the Islamic perspective, um, the first word that was revealed um, from the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad was the word ikra, an Arabic ikra, which means to read, analyze, debate, argue, think. So before God instructs the prophet Muhammad to believe in God blindly, he instructs him to use the rational part and to seek for truth and to seek for knowledge and to understand how the parts lead to understanding the concept of the divine. And in Catholic school, I really learned the other portion of understanding the emotional part of it. Um, you know, the, the love unconditionally, you know, and you kind of need both in life, you know, which is kind of amazing because the concept of, of God and the divine is really, you know, to be spiritually whole, you have to understand and you have to feel, you know? And um, I, think, I think that's kind of where I cultivated it from, is to really understand what the fight for justice is, and then to feel in the heart um, what is right and wrong. So I think that's where it came from. Um, and I don't know, a lot of therapy too, I think, <laughs> and just life, you know, raising my children. And I think understanding, um, you know, that, that it takes a lot of, a lot of personal growth, um, a lot of personal growth with, with struggles in life, and you learn a lot, and you see things, and your perspective changes, I think, in life. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
this is one of the the themes that we speak about in in why on earth and through the why on earth community's work this notion that that personal healing and development and um, quest really on some level is is so essential and that really on in a certain light this this whole sustainability effort and and work is an inside out job and i it seems to me that you really have embodied that and exemplify that in a in a beautiful way in in the communities all over that you're reaching and that you're working with well thank you thank you well you know and there's there's a concept um, that every tradition has i know personally in islam we call it the jihad which is the struggle for a personal best and I know one of my favorite quotes from the prophet Laozu um, from the Taoist tradition is, to know, um, to know others is knowledge, I believe, but to know oneself is enlightenment. And, you know, a struggle for justice and, and truth in the outside world is, is a larger jihad, you know, is a large jihad, but the, the knowledge of oneself and finding that balance and harmony and liberating any internalized oppression in here is... The really actually the greater jihad, the internal one. Because if you don't have any, if you don't fight for justice for your own soul and calmness and tranquility and fight the inner demons, there's no way that I can ever even talk to you about fighting for trees or fighting for clean water if I don't have this all in sync. So it really does begin in here. And I think a lot of activists, we, we forget about this part, you know? And when you're on an airplane, who do they tell to put the, the oxygen mask on first? You know, you, if you don't, then you, everybody else around you is like wearing on. <laughs> so the important thing is really, really to, to work on it simultaneously, but it's better to work on this first, yeah. the internal. Well, I'd, I'd, like you to, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to expand a little on this term jihad. You know, it's, it's one that I, I have found many of my friends, colleagues, family in the United States have a very particular and I would even say negative understanding of what that word means because of the way it's been used in popular media, etc. And what you're speaking to is a, a very different meaning about self-cultivation, self-awareness. And I'm hoping, would you expand on that for us? I would, I would love for, for our friends and audience to have a, a deeper and broader understanding of what that means. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. Um, the term jihad actually is such a holy thing. It's such a holy, precious concept. It's actually, it's actually a personal, as I said, struggle, but it is a quest mm. towards the divine, a path that is never an easy path. And if the divine encompasses the various attributes um, that go into the various nuances of what the divine means to so many people, um, it never is an easy road. So if we do want to find justice or righteousness or all these things for, for every living thing uh, on this planet, um, we don't have a magic wand, you know, and that takes effort and that takes enlightenment and that takes energy and that takes partnerships and companionships and um, communication skills and, you know, management and organizational skills. Yeah. Um, and that's really what it means. It means a struggle to do any job you do in the best way with the, using the resources that you have and learning how to use those resources in the most efficient way. Um, and the, the energy hat is also the same thing. What are the best techniques you have 
to make the best use of uh, your emotions and your, your insight um, and your attitude. And yes, it has been hijacked. It really has been hijacked. I know that the term became synonymous with a holy war or crusade during the time of the crusades in Europe. Mm -hmm. So it became adopted around that same time. And it is sadly not the first time another holy word has been hijacked. I fear now for a lot of my friends who are evangelical. And I'm the first person, I'm, I've been to a couple um, a couple interfaith gatherings. I mean, even when I did my work on the poor people's campaign, I remember telling a lot of my evangelical friends or even Christian friends, since when is spreading the gospel ever been a bad thing? And now a lot of people, you know, have, have sort of misused the word to evangelize. And it is really tragic when people take words and associate them with different political efforts or, or different, um, you know, right wing or left wing. Um, so, so thank you very much for asking me that question. But it is a, it is a, a personal struggle to do your ver very best on your journey towards the path towards the divine. Beautiful. Well, you know, um, as a writer, and I will also uh, share as a uh, student of Catholic schools, I went to a Jesuit high school. I am a, a total word nerd. I love the history behind words, the etymology of words. And it seems to me that part of the work we're doing also involves reclaiming what certain words mean and sharing and, and conversing and, and, and celebrating more like a, a feast in the richness that some of these words and the traditions that they reflect uh, can mean to us. And uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. It's, it's wonderful to, to hear that, the quest toward the divine. It, what, a, what a beautiful, beautiful concept and urge and impulse. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so your background is so interesting. It, it makes me think of a garden with many colored flowers, which uh, reminds me of this painting behind me. <laughs> And, you know, you live outside New York City, just north along the Hudson River, just a beautiful part of the uh, North American continent. You, you were in L.A. for a while uh, working in this one of the global centers of media culture. And you are from Iraq and from, you told me earlier, one of the oldest indigenous groups on the planet, known to be on the planet. And my goodness, what a what a rich background and story and experience. And I was wondering if you could just share with us a, a, a montage, a, a, an image, a, a, an impressionistic uh, <laughs> view into what your childhood was like and, and what what is there in your early experiences that you're carrying with you today. Oh, gee, thank you. Gosh, well, uh, my mom and my dad are both Iraqi born. I was born in Saudi Arabia. I came when I was a month old. My mom, um, she got a student visa. She completed her PhD here. So I was about a month old when we came. I settled in Pittsburgh and I grew up in a very uh, pluralistic, you know, Pittsburgh was a very, very intellectually sophisticated town. And 
Uh, actually, the synagogue, tragically, I, the synagogue that was attacked not too long ago, I spent a large part of my childhood there um, because honestly, we didn't know who was who in Pittsburgh. You know, we had Hindu professors and we had Vietnamese, you know, immigrants coming in and um, we had synagogues and we actually did have a mosque. So we used to go to the Syrian Orthodox Church. Um, and so they would give us the keys for Friday prayer and I used to do JCC uh, summer camps. So I grew up in a very, uh, very multi-layered, you know, pluralistic town. Jewish Community Center, JCC? Yeah, Jewish Community Centers, yes, at the tree, you know, which was adjacent to the Tree of Life Synagogue that was tragically uh, attacked um, last month. And, you know, actually I went to about 11 bat mitzvahs there, you know, um, as a child. And so those were really our houses of worship. Mr. Rogers lived about six blocks away from me. And so, you know, a, a Presbyterian mentality from the early ages, you know, he taught us about social justice. He taught us to share our cookies. He taught us to like, you know, have equal, even the neighborhood of make-believe. We used to go to the set of Mr. Rogers and the animals and the people all had equal power in the neighborhood of make-believe. Like in the 70s, everything was such a social justice, subtly infused, you know, area that we just never even noticed. Everything was anti-war, everything was vegan. I mean, so early in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and so I finished uh, elementary, middle high school. I finished high school and college in Florida. I had my children. And then I ended up taking my children. I raised my children in Los Angeles. And I worked there. I got a degree in public health. After my children were younger, I went back to school for television, and I ended up working in Los Angeles for about 13 years. Mm -hmm. I raised them there. I worked in the television industry, and then I was actually an empty nester. Mm -hmm. And a dear friend of ours, Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, my children grew up in Islamic schools. Um, I grew up in Catholic schools, so I wanted them to do parochial schools. So Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb used to do these interfaith summer camps for children. So actually, my kids were like, Mom, you got to get a life. You're by yourself now. We're out in college. Rabbi Lynn said, why don't you come? We're doing this experiment um, just outside New York City where we're getting together a bunch of Muslim Jews and Christians. We're going to run a conference center, and we're going to try this interfaith peace building um, concept. And so the rest is history. I just packed up and moved out here. And I've just the first two years, it was I just really had to to learn how to live on a farm. <laughs> I'm from LA, remember, you know? And um, I had to really study the different traditions, including my own, and just learn the verbiage, because it's a whole different game than, than television. I mean, I had to learn the words like movement building, and you know, just what does bearing witness mean, and what is echo justice, because it's such a whole different world than, than what most mainstream people talk about, which is a shame, um, but it's been a blessing. It sounds so wonderful and so beautiful. Will you will you share with us uh, some of the the specifics that you're working on through these organizations like Green Faith, where you're a fellow? Let's maybe start with that one. I know there are several we can talk about. Can can you share with us some of the the specific actions that are being mobilized in communities all over through that organization? Yes, yes. I think Green Faith actually is probably most precious organization to me and I, the organization that I have learned the most from because I hadn't you know everybody always talks about wanting to be an environmentalist you know and as when we're children we learn about recycling and we learn about so many little things about being you know Greenpeace and and a lot of things but it wasn't until 
I started working on their climate march a couple of years ago um, as a volunteer that I, I really understood what the intersection was between faith, moral conscious, and ecology. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I told you, I, my, my master's was in public health. My undergraduate was in geography. So there was always a little bit of excitement about the environment and the earth. But never did I once ever think that my Islam had anything to do with the earth. You know, even though, hello, we come from dust, we shall return to dust. I mean, our symbol is the crescent, you know, like we just never put these two and two things together. But it wasn't until I learned from Green Faith um, in helping to organize all these faith communities, we called ourselves A to Zers, agnostic to Zoroastrian. Um, and why it was imperative in all of our faith traditions to mobilize for Mother Earth, did it hit me that it was such an important part. I discovered books that were like this thick in every faith tradition. When I was recruiting Baha'is, when I was recruiting the Druids, when I was recruiting you know, the Buddhists, when I was recruiting the Hindus, I found Echo Justice in the Sikh community. And every single scripture it resonates with the earth and all talks about the concept of us being stewards with the earth, you know, for the earth and how we're supposed to walk gently on the earth and how we are not dominant with regards to the earth, how we are you know, part of the big ecological web and how it was an imperative, like a moral imperative to respect the mother earth um, and how ultimately we are held accountable on the day of judgment for our ego and how much we misuse the resources. Um, and then Lodato Si came right around 2015, the Pope's, you know, on a Catholic school kid. So when the Pope wrote um, the book, his, his Lodato Si, the Pope also has a master's degree in science. So it was wonderful to show people that science and religion don't clash, but there is that intellectual sophistication and the moral part that really does jive, you know, that, um, you know, reason and, and, you know, reason and faith really do come together and how we are held accountable to how we misuse resources because of our greed and ego and how we will be held morally accountable to that. And what, what um, sins we are, uh, you know, what sins we are committing by violating Mother Earth and what, what ramifications we have to other creatures on this earth. I think that's probably what I learned most from Green Faith and the projects that they do are phenomenal because they really are geared towards houses of worship. So, for example, we're trying to start from the top. Like, they're trying to green the Vatican. They're trying to green Mecca. You know, like every house of worship now, they're trying to tell them, if you're going to do Ramadan, don't use plastic. You know, don't use, don't use paper cups. Recycle your wudu water. Every church, every Sikh Gudwara, every Hindu temple, you know, use, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables from your local farmer. You know, um, teach your children at an early age you know, um, that the earth is holy. Make sure that, you know, you, you divest, you know, a lot of the major denominations are divesting from fossil fuels because, you know, at the end of the day, houses of worship have money. They have voter registration hubs. You know, they, ha- they do do major purchases. I mean, every Christmas party, every Eid festival, every church social, you know, and it's all conscience living inside the, lo- the lowest points, like your local, ha- like local hubs, not that the lowest, but your most tangible hubs, and at the hierarchy, you know, part also. So that's really what uh, Green Faith has been working on. So beautiful, so powerful. 
so so humble yet so far reaching in its scope of impact in my sense with some of the different green faith leaders and projects I've been able to uh, tap into just a little that things are just really getting rolling and the momentum is building and it seems that more and more is getting activated in, in communities all over. It's amazing. Yes, yes. I mean, it really, really has been like a chain reaction. Yeah. And even when Lodato Si was published, it became mandatory reading for a lot of youth groups. I mean, a lot of mosques, a lot of synagogues, a lot of Sikh and Hindu temples, and a lot of pagan like mother groves. I mean, that was mandatory reading for clergy and then abbreviated versions for the youth groups and for the children to talk about the concept of our, our common home and what moral sins we were, we were perpetrating um, because of our greed and how we just kept digging into Mother Earth and abusing her. And one of my favorite sayings that we taught the kids is there is no planet B. <laughs> like, where are we going to go? Yeah. You know, we can't, you can't go anywhere. And to show them that the correlation to, uh, between today's migration is really very directly related to, to climate change and, you know, almost... Almost every, I was at the parliament and I heard from one of the speakers that almost every single humanitarian crisis can be somehow traced back to violation of the earth. You know, I mean, when a hurricane hits or when a flood hits, that leads to migration, sex trafficking, kids pulled out of school, systematic violence, racism. I mean, you name it, it just goes on epidemics epidemiologically infections happen and, and water sanitation and it just goes on and on and on and it all starts with how morally we handle God's resources and how we distribute them equitably. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Let me, while I'm thinking of it, let me just take a, a quick pause in our conversation to share and remind with our audience that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And today we are talking with Sahar Al-Salani, uh, an incredible uh, faith leader, activist, and uh, ecologist, social justice uh, leader based out of the New York area. And I want to make sure to mention if anyone would like to learn more about your work, Sahar, they can find you on Facebook, Sahar Al-Salani. Of course, uh, that'll be spelled out in the show notes. And on Twitter, uh, can find you as Iraqi Sunflower. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, and I, I want to make sure also to remind our audience, if you would like to get any of the audiobook or ebook resources that we have available through Why on Earth, that's whyonearth.org, letter Y, uh, please use the code uh, podcast, the word podcast, to get a discount on any of those that you might like. And so, Sahar, I have to ask, uh, where did you come up with your Twitter handle, Sunflower? Uh, I love it. So sorry. You know, actually, my kids actually came up with it probably about 20 years ago. And, you know, they actually started my Twitter account, and it sort of stuck. They, they, you know, all these youngins, like you guys, are so good with technology. So they started it and I hadn't realized that that was the Twitter handle they were using, you know, and it actually wasn't by accident. It was by accident that I sort of figured it out because I was in a podcast sort of similar to this. And there was this, there was this gentleman next to me. He was a little bit larger with this big beard and our Twitter handles got switched. So oh. I had his name and he had at Iraqi Sunflower. <laughs> so it was just kind of cute how it happened. 
goodness. But that's the story. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Well, it is just beautiful. So yeah, folks can find you. And I understand that uh, early in 2019, you may be launching a new project with a new website uh, that will be announced probably through Twitter and Facebook. Is that right? Is that how folks can uh, keep up with, with what you're doing? Yes, yes, inshallah. I hope to, God willing. I've been working on it, and I've been looking for the best way to combine my, my television experience with my passion of interfaith peace activism. So keep, keep checking in, and hopefully within the next six weeks, something will, something will appear, and we'll definitely keep you posted. Beautiful. You know, I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to ask you, What's happening with the efforts of organizations like the Board of the Council on American-Islamic Relations? And I, I understand you're likely uh, starting a new position on the board of the North American Interfaith Network. And, you know, there has been so much uh, energy of divisiveness, of polarization evident in the media. And uh, there, there's probably a lot of fear out there among different groups. Of course, one of the great works we can do inside ourselves is to work to transform that fear into love, into work in our communities to transform conditions for fear to conditions for safety and acceptance. And uh, clearly there's so much work to be done in this arena. And can you share with us uh, some of the things these groups are, are doing right now and, and ways people can get involved and help with this healing work? Yes, thank you. You know, a lot of these advocacy organizations are all really, they're all doing the same work and they're doing amazing work, but it's parallel. Um, it's a lot of people, as I said earlier, do not know what others are doing. Um, that became evident when I was working in Green Faith. You know, we didn't realize that Buddhist Global Relief was doing something very similar to the, what the Mormons were doing. Mm -hmm. um, pagans are doing very similar work and sending things to Puerto Rico when the Hindus and the Amish are working together to send jets there every week. You know, and so there's this huge amount of faith-based activism that is, is, is happening simultaneously. Um, but there was just very little communication, not intentionally. It's just that people are so focused on their own work and their little hubs, you know. So a lot of the, the opportunities um, that a lot of these organizations like Religions for Peace or North American Interfaith Network is basically sort of a resource to say, hey, you know, we are doing the same thing and we don't want to duplicate efforts, but we could help um, simplify your efforts if you want. You know, if you have, for example, um, you know, like some of the Hindu temples, we have a lot of food. We have a lot of medical resources. And then the Bruderhofers can come and say, hey, well, we have four jets, you know? And so it just shows that how the resources can complement each other immediately. Mm -hmm. um, but another major, major important portion is that we really showed, um, and I know this is like the latest buzzword, but intersectionality. And it's really when layers of oppression overlap. Because a lot of times we never realize where these layers did overlap. I mean, and I think if there's anything that has come up from the divisiveness mm -hmm. of the last two years, it is the, the unlikely alliances that I have seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and I think that has what scared a lot of people, but has also been really part, possibly the most beautiful outcome of a lot of this, a lot of these tragedies. 
is that a lot of people understand that they are fighting for the same thing. Everybody wants clean water. Everybody wants a safe place for their children to put their head on a pillow and sleep. Nobody wants to be discriminated against because of who they are. You know, even if people don't agree with what they are doing, everybody agrees that they should be treated fairly under the law. And a lot of these organizations are standing up for each other in times of need, when sometimes you don't even have the energy to fight anymore. Um, and I think that has really, really proven itself. Um, CARE, Council on American Islamic Relations, was modeled off of the NAACP. Um, the NAACP, you know, GLAD was modeled, uh, you know, Gay and Lesbian was modeled off of the NAACP. But what's happened here now is we've seen how tragedies affect us. For example, if somebody in New York City gets pulled over and he's a young person who's African-American, his chances are get, of getting pulled over are more likely and getting harassed. If that young um, person happens to be um, Latino and African-American, that chance rises higher. If that person is Latino, African-American, and Muslim, then that person, that is triply increases the chances. If that person is Latino, African-American, Muslim, and of an LGBTQ identity, I mean, then that increases it more. So we all have a vested interest in helping other marginalized communities because that affects us. And that's where all of our resources come together. And I, I've noticed it when we went to Standing Rock. I mean, every time, every time you see a gr group of people of faith standing up at these rapid response, and honestly, it looks like Halloween sometimes. I mean, you just get the whole spectrum. You know, you can you can find the rabbi, you can find the uh, the hijabi, you can find the witch, you can find the indigenous, you can find the Sikh. And I think that's what really really shocks people because. There are a lot of a lot of allies that they did not, you know, when you see, you know, gay pride and you see a lot of these faith leaders or when you go, I mean, I remember the most precious example that I had was um, when the Muslim ban happened. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty fierce. I mean, you know, I've gone to Charlottesville. I stood in front of neo-Nazis with AK-47s. Okay. I mean, I'm pretty fierce. But when the Muslim ban happened, um, you know, the very first time, I think like about a year and a half ago, right after... The administration took over. I mean, this side of my body was numb. I mean, I, I curled up in the fetal position and I was crying, like I was bawling for about four hours. I felt so helpless. But boom, all of a sudden, I started getting texts. And I started just getting texts from Standing Rock, from the Japanese internment camp that I had visited like two years before, from the Mexican farm workers that we had visited like six months before. Um, you know, all these drag queens in Dallas were, you know, shutting down airports saying we love Muslims. The rabbis, I mean, people in Ferguson. And I guess for a minute, for a minute I knew how they must have felt when we showed up for them because they were taking care of it for me. And that's the real beauty of intersectional work and faith-based advocacy work because you get tired and you can fight for anybody else, but so when it really hits you, you just it's hard to fight for yourself. Um, and I think that's really the importance of the networking, these various organizations that I'm part of. It reminds me very much of what healthy ecosystems look like and how they work. It is a complex web work of relationships and interdependencies. And it is so beautiful to see that in, in the way you're connecting with all kinds of people in communities all over the place. 
And Sahar, my goodness, thank you so much for being with us today and for all the work you're doing. I, I sincerely hope our audience will connect with you on Facebook, Sahar Al-Salani, on Twitter, the Iraqi Sunflower, Iraqi Sunflower, no the in front of it, Iraqi Sunflower. And um, thank you so much, my friend, for all that you're doing. Oh my gosh, no, thank you. And we're very proud of you, Erin. You know, honestly, we're very, very proud of you and all the work you're doing. Thank you for giving us a platform to chat. Absolutely. God bless. Okay, my friend, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.